Hello, and welcome back to the Manufacturing Culture Podcast, your go-to destination for all, thing cult- all things culture in the manufacturing world. I'm your host, Jim Mayer, and I'm thrilled to bring you another episode filled with inspiration, innovation, and intriguing insights. But before we jump into today's show, let me remind you to visit our website at manufacturingculturepodcast.com. There you'll find episodes, merch, and resources that you won't find anywhere else. Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram to stay updated with all of our latest happenings. And speaking of happenings, our show is brought to you by industry leader Spironi, a name synonymous with excellence and innovation in tool management. Now, on to the main event of our podcast. We're about to introduce a true game changer in the realm of leadership and cultural transformation, Adrian Kaler. As a founder and senior partner at Take New Ground, Adrian is not just a coach. He's a revolutionary figure reshaping the landscape of executive coaching. He empowers leaders and entrepreneurs to achieve groundbreaking results and find fulfillment in their professional journey. Adrian's expertise isn't just theoretical, it's steeped in a diverse and rich background, ranging from philanthropy, easy for me to say, and ministry to activism and medicine. He's comfortable navigating complex and challenging environments, bringing his unique perspective to each situation. His dedication to enhancing human performance has taken him around the globe, impacting lives in times of crisis and transformation. With a client list that includes the U.S. Navy SEALs, Nike, Virgin Hyperloop One, and the Oprah Winfrey Network, Adrian's impact is both broad and deep. Before his move to Los Angeles, Adrian was making a profound difference as a pediatric intensive care specialist and as a pastor and community organizer. His educational journey with a master's degree in theology and a bachelor of science in nursing underlines his commitment to service and leadership. So let's get ready to dive deep into the world of leadership, culture, and transformation with Adrian Kaler. Welcome to the Manufacturing Culture Podcast. Adrian, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Jim, honored to be here, man. Thank you so much for that generous intro. You're very welcome. I, I've told guests before, I think we may have talked about it on uh, the intro call. That's one of my favorite parts of this whole thing that I do is is writing those bios and or those That's intros. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I, I was never given a chance to be a, a very creative person uh, in my previous careers. So this is yeah. my chance to to really exploit that. And I have a blast with it. That's awesome. You know, it reminds me of, uh, do you know a guy named Tom Bilyeu? Does that name ring a bell? So Tom is another guy that that does intros like that. His was called, oh, it's called Impact Studio or something now. He's he was a co-founder of the company Quest, which was like a nutrition bar. Okay. And they, yeah. they sold it for like a billion dollars. <laughs> and um, like literally sold it for a billion dollars. It was like the fastest growing wow. nutrition bar. This was like 10 years ago. Anyway, wow. one of his, he's an interesting cat, a little bit, you know, weird in a, in a good way. Um, but yeah. he has always just blown the doors off when it comes to intros of his guests. And it's just, it is fun to, you know, because in the world of, of, and this probably pertains to our conversation today, in the world of our like breakneck pace, like how often 
do is does anybody stop and really just for the for the I mean part of it was to serve the podcast to let them know who I am but but really it was you wrote it that way to bless me right and how Absolutely. how often do we how often do we stop and just intentionally bless someone awesome point I yeah. mean and and thank you yes let's let's dive into that a little bit yeah. uh, first uh, Adrian I want to. I want to hear your journey. I mean, you and I have talked, we had our pre-call, sure. um, but your journey is one that really blows people's socks off when they hear it. So in your own words, I mean, I, I can yeah. write all I want, but that's not your story. Tell us your story. Yeah. Well, Let's see where to begin. I mean, and I'll try to give like a, a, a medium length version and then we can double click <laughs> on anything you want. Um, so, you know, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Illinois, 8,000 people in my hometown and that when everybody's home uh, and, you know, an hour and a half east of St. Louis, four hours south of Chicago, second born son of Jim and Angie Kaler, both public school teachers, great human beings. Um, members, you know, uh, in, investing members of the community, like very involved in all things. I mean, as, as school teachers, especially in like small town America, you, you know, you hold a unique spot, especially in, Sal in Salem, because my father and mother both were able to like coach, not coach, uh, teach three different generations because they have kids so young, wow. right? So it's like yeah. they have their first year in teaching. They had little Tommy and Tommy got married. And when he was 18, had, you know, Susie. And then Susie came up and da -da -da, and Susie had a kid named Toby. And, da -da, you know, um, and, you know, so you really get to be ingrained in, in family life. And so everybody knew Jim and Angie and from even just from that, but beyond that, like they were involved and you could, from listeners, you could tell I had some kind of, I don't know, uh, religious history. Uh, you know, I was kind of, I'd say I was socialized into Christianity and, okay. you know, they were a part of a church. They started a church when I was like two years old, they left the church with a group of 25 people and started a new church. And so they were core members to that new church. And, you know, so I grew up there. I, I, you know, evergreen Christian church still standing today. And my parents are still there exact same seats for the last 45 years. Wow. Um, and you know, that, that community has gone up and down It had different iterations with different pastors and such, as you can imagine. But you know, it's like when I walk back and out uh, coming up at the end of December, when I take my kids back, you know, we're recording this middle of December, when I go back to at the end of December, I'll walk in and I'll see so many faces that I've seen as long as I had eyeballs to see, which is kind of a unique, wow. pretty cool thing. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, and they're older now. All those folks are like in their late seventies. Like my, my parents are in their mid seventies and all of them are like mid to late seventies. And it's just really cool. Part of, it's cool for them because, you know, one of their, one of their sons has come home, you know, in right. that world, they'll say one of their Timothy's, um, which <laughs> is a biblical reference. Um, okay. Like one of the, one of the ones that they invested in and, you know, and then served and helped and gave opportunities to, you know, has gone off to the world, gone off to, you know, the God's forsaken place called California, which they've <laughs> never, they've never been to, but they love to, they love to judge. Um, because they watch Fox News too much, but then they come back, and you know, and I'm there, and they're proud of me, and it's awesome. And I'm, I, I yeah. walk in there with my kids, and they'll tell all the little, you know, very flattering and very sweet stories to my kids about, you know, when your when your dad was this age, and they tell some funny story. And anyway, yeah. so 
I I joked that I was like born into a an episode of Friday Night Lights, and that was kind of like what it was because like my my uh, my father coached, uh, so he was a school teacher, but he was like the coach teacher guy. You know, it's like the yeah. short bike shorts in the eighties and the whistle and <laughs> and all that. But I grew up going to watching softball games, watching him. One of my early memories had to be when my father had blown out his knee in a church softball game and he's like writhing in pain. You know, it's like when Superman actually got hit by the bullet. You know, yeah. I remember that. I remember the shag carpet in my living room and he's like in, you know, anyway, got his knee fixed. But um, point being is that we were very much a sports family. And I said I was the youngest of, of two. My older brother, he was Matt, he was a hoss, we would have called him. He was a big dude and set big all dude. the records in every sport he played, which was wonderful. And then it helped create a worldview for me, very competitive, always kind of uh, striving to catch up. And my, you know, I didn't have the genetics my brother had. Um, I guess I literally okay. did, but he, I wasn't big. I was small. And, you know, I did have the upper hand on him academically. That part came really easily for me, not as easily for him. But okay. uh, in athletics, I had to, like, catch up, you know, and I had yeah. to outwork the crowd, which, you know, was hard at the time, number one. Number two, huge advantage because I learned yeah. things through discipline and sacrifice that he never had to learn. He blew out, you know, pretty quickly. We both went on to play college sports. Uh, he was done after his freshman year once it required some you know, sacrifice. I love that. And I was used to outworking the competition just to keep up, but then finally, you know, got the edge. Um, but I still wasn't as fast as the kids out of Chicago and couldn't jump as high and all that, but I'd outwork them in the weight room and I'd get there early to practice and stay late and all that kind of stuff. So it gave me a big yeah. advantage, but we were a very sports family. So we, we grew up playing all the sports. My father literally built the baseball diamond in town. Like there's, <laughs> it's, it's in one of them now where well, they don't play at those fields anymore, but one of the new fields it, it literally is Jim Kaler field because wow. he's, he, you know, such an icon. I joke that my father's like that George Bailey of my hometown as a, it's a wonderful life reference. He's like that guy. <laughs> If you walk, got it. If you walked into Walmart with my parents, you know that's an hour and a half affair. No matter what you want to do, because everybody stops and talks to them, and they've got relationships with everybody. Just kind of painting a picture. Like I was, it was all it was all white town, um, which I didn't really know the difference back then. And but I I did know quickly and over time that I liked diversity. Um, I okay. really liked diversity of thought, and I liked diversity mm -hmm. of worldview. And I could tell that everybody in my town, I mean, it seemed like everybody thought the same way. And I mm -hmm. thought, no problem. But I already understand that. What's, what do other people think? You know, what Got else it. is there to see out there? And I, I was always, um, you know, curious about other perspectives, yeah. which, you know, generated, started to generate a theme for my life that still goes on today. And it's <laughs> one of, I think, one of my superpowers is actually seeing other perspectives, honoring other perspectives even on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, nobody's perspective will ever insult me or or upset me because I'm just really curious about it. And I, I'm naturally kind of empathetic, and that's like the truest definition of empathy is to see the world from someone else's shoes and honor that. Yeah. Not that you have to agree with it or co-sign on it or not dis... You know, it's like, you don't. but can I see it from their perspective, which is distinct from... If I was in their shoes, most people think empathy is like that. If I was in their shoes, what would I do? That's not empathy. No, no. If I am their shoes, how right. do I see it? And how does it make sense to me? Because everybody makes the best decision they see in the moment. So how are they seeing it that makes mm -hmm. that make sense? And can I see that and honor it? And then can I work with them from where they are versus from some judgmental place of where I think they should be? Yeah. Anyway, I so 
uh, back to the story. Uh, the so I loved that. Loved growing up there. Really charmed life. You know, did not have a hard upbringing at all. Um, mm-hmm. My parents sacrificed for me. Parents are still married. You know, some really cool. You know, unique shit these days. Yeah. Um, and a lot of stability. And my parents, while uh, they gave themselves to us. There were obviously some deficits of like what I wanted or needed that wasn't available. Um, sure. And, you know, we were a pretty quiet house. We didn't deal with conflict very well. We didn't deal with it on the surface. Um, you know, and my, my, I wanted things from my father that he just couldn't give me. Um, and I didn't know it. I didn't know that at the time. It was just, you know, it was a, there was a gap there, mostly around mentoring and mostly around education. Like I have a couple of kids now. Hmm. I have a uh, nine-year-old son and a seven-year-old girl, and I love talking with them about the intricacies, as much as they have awareness of, about what they think and how they feel and what makes them think and feel that way. And what if they think, you know, it's like the whole exploration of being, really. Like, yeah. I, was, I was always seeking that because early in life, I was philosophical. I was psychological. I was, like, serious about life. People told me from the, the beginning, you've got an old soul, which is usually code for you know, not like a kid. Like, why don't you like be more like a kid? And I was always like, no, yeah. I want to grow up. I want to think like an adult. I want to talk to the adults. I don't want to go play tag. That's what little kids do. I want to go sit and have a theological discussion, you know? Yeah. Um, or I'd sit around at the dinner table. It's like, can we turn off wheel of fortune? Can we talk? You know, I was always that I wanted some, some depth and sincerity, which was a little much for yeah. my family, which you know, I wore that for a long time, like I was a little much. And then I just realized over time that I'm an acquired taste and I'm not for everybody. I like the deep end. <laughs> I I can talk about the Dodgers if you want. I mean, I don't know much about them, but I can bullshit about the Dodgers. That's great. I can talk about the weather if you want. I don't know much about it because I don't look at the weather ever or the price of gas. My dad's always calling me and saying, hey, what's the price of gas? Dad, I don't know. I don't care. I make good money. I don't care about the price of gas. I'm going to yeah. pay it. I'm going to pay it. So I have to drive. Well, I live in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, I don't care, you know, and I'll and I will not drive across town like he like he does. It's a small town, but he'll drive across town to save a couple of pennies. I will not. I will pay right. for convenience. It's right here. I'm paying. If you have to pay an extra dollar a gallon, I do not care. Nope. Um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, I got out of uh, deciding where to go to school. I, you know, had worked hard enough that I got opportunities to go play football in college, which was a shock to me. And a huge gift to me. And I was the first one, um, you know, to be able to go do that. My brother got offers wow. and he played, he played a freshman year, but you know, anyway, got pursued to go play college. I played college at Millican university, which is a small D three school. So not a huge leap up, um, but huge, huge for me at the time. And, uh, it's a huge opportunity, yeah. huge, like 1% of people do it. Um, and, uh, even less now, but, yeah. um, went on to play there. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Like I, you know, it's shocking now, like the, as I think about the conversations I have with my stepkids, I've got a couple of stepkids, 18 and 16, and the conversations okay. I will have with my nine-year-old and seven-year-old, where they'll go to school wherever they want, wherever they want around the world. And I'll yeah. think that's awesome. And when I talked about going to school, it was like, stay close, you know, because that's kind of, you know, people naturally give what they want themselves. And my parents wanted me close and they love being involved, right. which is wonderful. Like that comes out of a really sweet, but, it, but there wasn't, there wasn't a heart for adventure. There wasn't a heart for exploration in my family. Um, okay. and my, you know, growing up, um, and a lot of who I am now 
And, you know, I think this happens pretty naturally. We kind of, we decide to become, you know, what wasn't there before, you know? So even when okay. I just did a core values conversation with my nine and seven year old, cause I'm a coach and what do we do? You know, we sit down and talk about family core values. So, yep. you know, they made their lists of, I just said, you know, what, what kind of family do you want to be in? If you had the perfect family, perfect environment to like grow up in, describe it. What would it be like? And it was amazing for this nine and seven year old. That's all I said to them. And they sit there and they made long notes. They, they wrote a lot longer than I did. Um, wow. And they came up with lists of 30 characteristics, which I thought was beautiful. Even my, even my seven year old. And, wow. you know, we came up with what, let's see if I can come up with the top five. Um, the first one is gratitude. The second one is be a team player. The third one is be creative. Um, the fourth one is active. And the fifth one is adventurous. Okay. So I like those. That's I bring, awesome. Yeah, and a great. So I bring it up. I bring it up because adventurous is in our top five. It wouldn't have been, definitely wouldn't have been in our top five with me growing up. You know, we, okay. we, you know, we, we did stuff and we went on vacation, you know, every year, but we went to the same place or this, you know, whatever. It wasn't like exploration and new, like my, we didn't have an appreciation of the new. I can't get enough of the new. I love new shit. I love meeting new people. I love trying new food. I love going new places. Anything new um, is so exciting for me. And we know from the neuroscience now that, that over time, you know, like time speeds up, like people say mm -hmm. time flies why it flies neurologically speaking is because we have less first time experiences. So if you wow. want time to slow down as an adult listeners, if you want time to slow down, go do something new. It actually, it generates almost like a character, like no, no chapter shift in a book. So if you, if you, Interesting. you know, if you're bored, you just don't have new things going on. If time's flying, you don't have new things because your brain pays attention to something new. It doesn't know what to do with it. So it, it generates a whole shift in the experience of time. So anyway, yeah, interesting. let's see, went on to school, didn't know what I wanted to be. Uh, also didn't do a massive amount of exploration with my parents about that. I just don't think they, you know, they were school teachers. They'd done it for 30, 40 years. They hadn't been in much, you know, exploration about that either. So, and they, you know, we didn't have a large access to a bunch of people that did a lot of things. So anyway, went off to school they are naturally th we're thinking about what's a what's a good steady career. I think it's a nice parental, yeah. you know, concern. I was a uh, pre med in college for like a semester, and I because I liked all the science stuff, and I took as many biology classes as I could, and that part really clicked with me. And I'm naturally very curious about um, about all that, and I could I was good for whatever reason. My brain's good at memorizing things, so sure. I was good at like you know. Uh, rocking it on tests and that kind of thing. But I was pre-med thinking, oh, I could be a doctor. That would be fun. Um, but then when I say I got into it, I realized I'm not like these people. I, you know, yeah. it's like they, you know, I was like biology pre-med and it wasn't my crowd. That's for sure. And then I thought, I really don't want to go into school for, for seven years. So serendipitously, yeah. And, and I know now, I don't think I knew back then, but I know now it's like, you know, doctors see the world from, from research and data. That's where they start the conversation. Um, eventually, I mean, I serendipitously, my roommate in college, freshman year, his father ran the ER in Gary, Indiana. So tough, <laughs> tough ER, rough ER, yeah. like gunshots, stabbing, all that. That sounded interesting wow. to me. But so anyway, I, it was perfect because I thought, oh, this is like Dr. Light. I'll go get a nursing major. And, and it sounded fun. And I know nursing starts from the human and then works its way back 
to the clinical. Sure. You know, doctors start sure. the clinical, work their way down. Sometimes they make it. A lot of doctors don't ever make it to the human being. They're just there with a case number and a diagnosis and they're plugging in. They're just solving a problem or, you know, yep. it's like they're uh, uh, unlocking a, a lock instead of like connecting to a human being. And I, I've, mm -hmm. I have been, I probably got that from my parents, always very people oriented. And I got that from my faith background as well. You know, I think if you're, I mean, if you're religious, that's a, that's a roll of the dice. But if you're somebody that really um, attempts to love God or, and whatever that means to you, but, and then love what God loves, I think at the core of any religion, God loves people. Absolutely. And loves being a part of helping people redeem themselves, put themselves back together. And, you know, the biggest concern, I think, uh, the big, big arc of Christianity, I'm still a guy that follows Jesus. I'm not that religious. But the big arc is to be a part of the redemption of the world, like put the world back together. Um, sure. And so that, that happened. That's a big macro conversation. But even on a micro conversation, how do you make something better? You yeah. know, how do, how do you put, some, you know, how do you order the chaos and release beauty? My business partner would say that's his big, his big motto in life. That's what he's called to is order chaos and release beauty. Anyway. Okay. I was a nursing major in college. The last half moved on to Chicago after that because I was dating a girl from Chicago and we broke up, of course, two weeks after I got there. But I, I, uh, you know, got a lot of offers and I fell in love with the, in the PD, the, uh, children's hospital in Chicago. It just, you know, it's kids, man. Like yeah, kids. I mean, absolutely. you know, it's such an honorable opportunity, scary, but you never, you're never lacking meaning because a kid. Sure for the most part, a kid would never deserve whatever's happening to them. If you got some 90 year old with emphysema and they smoked for 50 years, welcome. Right. You know, you, you right. earned it, but for the kid, they never earned anything. So, and I love the complexity, right? So it's like the kid is sick, but you're actually dealing with the parents as well. They're always there at the bedside and you know, and you're dealing a lot, most of the time with a mom and a dad and the, both of them the male and female genders usually respond to chaos distinctly. Usually the yep. mom was frantic and looking for control and looking for answers and, and okay. uh, very heightened emotions. Usually the dad was quiet and to himself and angry and cause he couldn't fix the thing. And anyway, just those are big stereotypes, but that's the way it usually lined out. And I really loved the opportunity to come in and give them a fresh experience. Like, okay, oh. like I'm, I'm a subject knowledge expert. I know everything about this and I know what's going on for your child. And just let's sit down. It's yeah. first off, it's going to be okay. And second, if you let's talk about how you guys can participate in these 12 hours that I'm with you so that you can get the most out of this. And so that you can be there. You can be there for your kid. You can actually, you know, have, be there for yourself as well, um, because there's ways to show up that actually will you'll miss the opportunities. And worst case, if the kid is tanking, which happened from time to time, you know, I'd lots sure. of kids die on my watch because um, nothing we could do about it. Uh, you want to be present for that. And we naturally yeah. want to run from pain, naturally want to run from the worst. I mean, that's the worst case scenario of every parent's worst nightmare is a kid dying. So, you know, being able to, you know, usher in a real presence for them and being that calming, I mean, some in the, in the bio was about, you know, uh, being calm in the midst of chaos. And, and when you, when you're in the pediatric intensive care, it is chaos. Um, oh, I can and only I, imagine. Yeah, it was crazy. So I, I really enjoyed that, but I didn't like want to be a nurse. That's the ironic about it. I didn't, I mean, I got a nursing degree, but I, I was not at all interested in like doing a 20 year, 30 year career as a nurse wearing scrubs every day. Cause I want to, you know, keep increasing my, 
um, you know, I want to uh, climb the ladder, if you will. And if yeah. you go up in the ladder in that world, you're just going to go schedule vacations and write policies and procedures. And I'm not into that. I'm not administrative at all. Um, right. And I don't like doing all that stuff. I'm not detail oriented that way. I don't care. You know, so I knew I didn't want to do that. But I did. I knew that a nursing degree would give me uh, a license, literally, but then give me freedom to go travel the world and go do whatever I wanted. Yeah. So I was in Chicago working there, was serving at a church in Los I'm sorry, in Chicago. And I, you know, was a musician back then as well and blah, blah, blah. All anyway, very involved yeah. in the community and loved it and loved being involved, loved helping people. Even though I was, you know, I, I became a member at that church like the second week I was there, which was, I guess, baffling to them. I remember them saying, wow. who's been here, you know? Uh, you know, who's, who's been here for 10 years and some people would raise their hand. There's your people that are like, uh, going to this membership class or whatever and worked it all the way down to, you know, they, they gave her an award for who'd been there the longest and who'd been there the shortest. And I just been there two weeks and they were like, what? You're just, you're becoming a member after two weeks. I'm like, yeah, I'm that kind of guy. I'm like an all in dude. So if I'm going to be here, I'm going to be a member for sure. And long story short, I was with a, I was with that church on a trip to India to go do some medical stuff and play some music wow. and, and all this kind of stuff. And while I was there, I heard a CD. Remember those? A CD of a talk of this guy named Erwin McManus. And he'd given this talk, this sermon uh, called The Barbarian's Way Out of Civilization. And it was essentially a view of this Jesus figure of, you know, how he didn't come to start a religion. He actually came to start a revolution. And for my 23-year-old years, I thought, oh, I That's like that. That's interesting. That's yeah. cooler than like go fit in and be a good boy. Like I, that's all boring to me. Um, but starting a revolution, I like a revolution. What is that about? Long story short, came back from that trip, read every book Irwin had read, and he was brilliant. And I uh, quickly, in the next six months, packed my bags and moved to Los Angeles because I thought, wow. It's kind of a little bit of a theme of my life. I've always just looked for the next person that I wanted to be like. So okay. always searching for mentors and then would go do whatever they were doing just to be close to them and pick up how they saw the world, pick up what they were doing, contribute to what they were doing. And sure. so I moved out to L.A. and I was an intern. Um, and while I was here, they and I did some nursing stuff to kind of pay the bills. And then uh, while I was here, they created this master's program called the protege program so we actually you know mosaic was unique in the sense that it was in the center of la we didn't own a building um which is easy to not do in la because it's really expensive to get real yeah. estate and such we had these pop-ups all over the place like seven different locations around los angeles and you know on sundays we just pop up a service like in a nightclub or at an old folks home or in a high school or whatever so That's we needed cool. it was a very flat organization and we need a lot of help <laughs> need a lot of volunteers to step up and they called volunteers volunteer staff at the point or at that point and uh then but for the internship called the project program they gave you a, they assigned you something to go do and so i worked on college campuses creating healthy spiritual community on campus which was great extremely entrepreneurial yeah. i literally walked on all these campuses i was given five schools the guy who was my mentor at the time said to me this exact quote adrian we want you to go to these five schools um we don't have any presence there and we don't think it can be done but you're our best shot and I thought, you are speaking my love language. Thank you. It's impossible. It's impossible. Thank you, sir. His name is Eric Bryant. He's a sweetheart. Um, so anyway, I'd walk onto these college campuses and find a way to like start building community. And we'd have international food nights and end up becoming like Bible study type stuff. 
Um, but you know, seeing life transformation, lives of these kids, like health and, and, you know, their own spiritual, you know, we were very open, um, and very inviting before that was PC and cool to do. Um, <laughs> you know, we were just into it, like wherever you're at, it's a perfect way to start. Nothing wrong with where you're starting. It's like, but where are you headed? That's where we're inviting you is to know a God that loves you. You know, it's really yeah. cool. It's really, if it's true, it's really cool. If it's not true, then fine. But if it's true, sure. holy cow, it can change your world. I know it changed my world. So yeah. long. So anyway, long story short on that side, um, did that for a couple of years. I had always had activism in my bones. I'd always, um, even in Chicago, like homeless people were some of my best friends just cause I cared and I thought it was fun and, and cool to like get to know these guys and like, yeah. you know, and on a first name basis and have dinner with them. And, but you know, we, I'd always go to Seven wow. Eleven buy hot dogs and we'd sit down and talk. And, and when I was brand new to the city, after I broke up with that girl, I didn't have any friends yet. So Crockett yeah. and Blackjack, these two characters that sit on my corner they're my buddies so we'd get we'd get 7-eleven hot dogs and drink cokes and they'd take they'd teach me about the city and i just loved wow. that i just That's loved neat. it i you know nobody taught me that i just thought it was cool to get to know these guys and they loved it of course and i loved it too anyway helping make a difference in the lives of people who felt outside or who were marginalized or who were, who were abused or left out i've just always gotten a thrill out of that and yeah. i knew it was a good thing to do but i didn't do it i bet i also just got a thrill it was like so fun to do and yeah. i really loved inviting other people who were scared to death to come do it with me so long story short after i'd done that internship at mosaic they said hey we know you because i'd already started to build teams to go serve in the city um, okay. and they just said would you stay would you help formalize this and mosaic it was about three thousand people so Fast forward wow. a couple of years, we had a whole network. And so I got to do what I do well, which is build community and build networks and build trust and build leadership teams and, and then generate possibilities for people to get connected. I'm in that kind of connector. I'm that connector type guy, Malcolm Gladwell. Um, yeah. <clears throat> uh, and I love that. So about 2000 people a year would get out and go serve. Um, and I knew wow. I would just tell him, I said, give me an hour of your week and it'll be the best hour of your week. I promise you. I'll give you yeah. an experience that you're going to talk about at all the cocktail parties. You're not going to talk about how much you hate work. You're going to talk about the fact of, you know, you mentored this homeless kid and he's changing your life. You came to change his, but he changed yours. So yeah. and took teams overseas and, and would be able to mobilize people in emergency response. I could meld my healthcare background with, you know, what's happening, um, in church sure. at the time. So like, you Absolutely. know, hurricane Katrina happened, was on a team of 20 people that went, you know, uh, the, the earthquake happened in Haiti. I took a team of like six, eight doctors to go down and set up a, a clinic, you know, five days after, wow. like, you know, you know, they just call me, Adrian, what are we going to do? And I'd say, give me 24 hours. And I'd figure it all out. So it was kind of like, wow. You know, felt like, felt like, you know, Jason Bourne at the time. It was like an, you know, an impossible Absolutely. mission, rock and roll, like, or an episode of 24, like start the clock, us against yeah. the world, which was just great for, for a young, ambitious, you know, smart enough kid in his 20s to be able to do that and have access to all these amazing human beings that I didn't, you know, it was just part of the community. Um, yeah. But really learned how to connect with people deeply and quickly and uh, loved that. And I did that for a good while. Through that, I'd helped a guy come to faith or, you know, take steps in his own spiritual journey. His father was a billionaire. So he was a millionaire just because he was born. He, was, he had right. a big trust fund and such. And he wasn't like a crazy trust fund kid. He was more 
troubled and more uh, introspective. So he was like a guy that like, you know, would spend weeks in a cabin reading Kierkegaard or Hegel or, you know, fu- wow. you know philosophy. And, and, you know, he'd gone to NYU, a Jewish atheist kid, went to NYU and studied <laughs> Western religion, you know, so very much wow. a seeker. And he asked me, hey, I want to give some money away. Where do I give it? You know, where do I write the checks? And that started a whole new conversation because I said, no, 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 we need to slow down. Like, let's talk about money. Let's talk about the purpose of money. Let's talk about the gift of money and how you could. And then let's talk about you and what you care about. And, you know, he didn't really know what he cared about because he was new in this conversation. He like first realized there's a whole world out there. And then, you know, there's a bunch of need out there. Like what? How about we do something that you care about? And so yeah. I need, needed to take him around the world to expose him, to give him opportunities to go see. So I took him around Africa several times. And, and uh, you know, I, I was very well networked in L.A., obviously, from my work at the church. And he yeah. ended up loving to work with people who have really blown it that needed a second chance. So in that realm, it meant we started by giving a huge uh, grant to Homeboy Industries, which in L.A. is very famous for Father Greg Boyle. It's like an incubator, entrepreneurial incubator on the east, east side of L.A., tough side of L.A. And yeah. uh, it was like a, you know, kind of a, one of the pet projects of the mayor. We literally put a cafe for them in City Hall, you know, so $250,000, put a cafe like a, a still to this day, uh, a floor below the mayor's office. There's an ex-con slinging coffee, which I think is awesome. I think I just went there. Uh, I was in LA. I was flying out of LAX last week, and uh, Homeboy, the gate that I uh, Homeboy Bakery, yeah, Yeah, and at at the American Airlines uh, Terminal Four, for sure. So same organization. So fast forward, fast forward. I followed some nuns into prison because Catholics have this whole restorative (laughs) justice bend to them, which is cool. They they knew all these lifers, and they had this like pen pal type thing, which is cool, but you know whatever. And yeah. uh, simultaneously, I met this guy named Dan Takini. Dan was running, had been doing management consulting work for a long time, also had been doing this gang intervention work with mostly okay. juveniles, mostly on the East Coast out of Lynn, Massachusetts, with a group called Straight Ahead. But he had created a program called Ready for Life. Now, in that world, what they study is recidivism. Recidivism is what's the percentage of or, or how likely is someone to come back to prison after they've been released and average in america at least at the time was 87 percent. so 87 percent of guys if you let them out they're going to come back and there's not a big mystery why prisons are actually criminal factories they don't you know they don't help anybody right they make people more criminal and they're full of criminals obviously so but with his program uh called ready for life if you went through that spent three days in a room with dan um your recid- the recidivism of those people went from 87% down to 12%. Astronomical. Yes. Neck-breaking That's mind-blowing. Yeah. yeah. So because the core of that conversation is around one distinction of those three days, it's just all around this conversation, uh, this exercise we call victim responsible. And I won't get into okay. all the, the depths of it, but essentially the theme is if someone – feels victimized they act victimized and victimized people in their own mind have justified that they can perpetrate right they will continue to be criminal because the world did this to them their dad the color of their skin blah 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 whatever the story is if they feel like they're a victim they will they will naturally go victimize other people hurt people hurt people blah 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 if you shift from a victim mindset to a responsible mindset, that's what makes the difference, right? So, you know, okay. in prison, we'd always say, you want to be in prison. 
And they say, no, I don't want to be here, blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, you're here. So you must want to be here. Let's talk about it. You know, and after a little bit of time, they'll, they'll cop to the fact that they made choices all along the way. There's like hundreds of choices they made to earn prison. Now, sure. what do you want to do moving forward? You know, they say, not I just want to get here. Yeah, I don't <laughs> want to get out. And that's not much of a vision just to want to get out. What are you going to do when you get out? That's why most people go back is because their vision is to get out, but they don't have a vision for who they'll be and what they'll do once they get out. Right. There's no commitment yeah. to further them, let alone to heal their pain, let alone to heal the community that they wounded, let alone to, you know, there's like lots of things. And mm-hmm. that there's purpose baked in all that. There's like dignity sure. baked in all that. And so once you give, give them an appetite for dignity and purpose, man, people shift. I mean, all those. So we, we did these trainings with these lifers. There was first, there was 30 lifers. All of them were murderers. And they'd all, they were probably all most of them late thirties, early forties when they were 16, 17, 20, they'd killed somebody, you know, a lot of it gang, a lot of it group, a lot of, you know, a lot of all that. Yeah. But they saw the idea that they could actually, what they were dying to do with their kids, what they were dying to do with their community, they were actually weren't with their community or with their kids anymore, but they were surrounded by 2,000 inmates that they could make a difference with, and they could father a ton of kids. There's a bunch of brand new kids coming in, and all of them could stand in as the kid they wished they could take care of, which is out there. They could actually treat their kid right in front of them in the next cell like it was their own. And once they did that, their life was forever shifted. They were still incarcerated for a while. They all got every single one of them next time they got up for the parole board after they got out of our training was released. Wow. They'd been gone up to the parole board several times, just like Shawshank Redemption, you know, refuse, refuse, refuse. But after they come through our training, they had such a change of heart and change of soul and then change of mind. Like they could actually speak from an authentic place of responsibility and commitment for the future, they all got released, 100% of them. And wow. even t- today, even if people want to listen, so we've got a podcast called The Naked Leadership Podcast. A recent episode, probably two months ago, there's an interview with a guy named Richard Morales. He was one of the guys that was in prison. So if you want to hear a guy, I mean, we're all crying on that podcast. So if you want to hear me cry, <laughs> feel free. Um, but it's just listening to this guy's story. He got out and started a whole thing just like what we trained him to do. And he just got, he and his organization called CROP, I forget what it stands for. They just got written into the California budget for $20 million, not given a grant, written into the budget because of their work with criminals. Because if they go through their, similar to ours, if they go through their trainings, they don't go back. So anyways, state of California says, okay, these guys are great. Even when they were doing these trainings in prison, local universities would send their college students to the leadership trainings that our guys were putting on because they were so effective. So anyway, so I did that for a good while. I loved it. Um, as we moved on, you know, of course, hired the staff, built the board, got all the vision and mission, blah, blah, all that stuff in place. The guy that had given the money, um, he got really involved, which is wonderful. I mean, I'd done yeah. my job. He moved from being like a board member to like really being in the room and love the work. That's really my job. Yeah. With that though, he wanted to really focus. He wanted to work with this group of people in this prison, which is awesome. Except for, for me, boring. I love new stuff as we talked about earlier. So, and I wanted to go change the world. I'm like, we've got this much sure. money in the bank and you got me at the helm. We can write laws. I, we, you yeah. want me to go to the white house next week? I can figure that out. You know, but anyway, he didn't want to do that kind of work. He just wanted to work with these guys, which is wonderful, but it meant over time, it's time for me to go. I had gone sure. through all these trainings that Dan had put on. 
that business partner of mine, he was doing all these public trainings, like a three-day training and a four-day training and a marriage thing and a coach's academy. I'd gone through all of it, partially to get to know him and get to know the work, but also just for myself. I'm a nerd for that kind of stuff. I mean, I coach yeah. for a living now, so I love all the personal development stuff, especially that that had a challenge baked into it, which Dan's stuff always does. And I love a challenge. Welcome to being an athlete. So I, you know, what was I going to do now? I could go back to nursing. That would have been boring. I could go do, you know, philanthropy, which usually is very administrative and kind of spreadsheet based. And, you know, that's all boring to me. I could go work in any church in America, but most churches wouldn't take me. Um, and <laughs> so now what I'm going to do? Well, I've gone through this coaches academy. I'll just go be a coach. And that was 13 years ago. And so I just, you know, decided uh, I was going to be a coach. And I knew enough to be dangerous, but I had yeah. I had a great network. I had already been a coach to so many people, so it wasn't a big jump for people. It kind of made sense to them, and I just had to figure it out, but it worked pretty quickly. I'm really good. Like If we sit next to each other on a plane, if I'm in the mood, you're probably going to be a coaching client by the end of the plane ride. Like I just <laughs> love that. I love that challenge. Sure. I'm, a, I'm an evangelist naturally for whatever I'm involved with. I love development of those conversations. I guess you'd call it sales. But I don't ever see it as selling. I see it as motivating people to go make courageous decisions, which most people want to do. They're just scared to death to do. Um, yeah. And I love that. I love championing people. Now I call it fierce advocacy. Over time, as you kind of get the brand figured out and like really what makes me come alive is, you know, I'm, I can be really brash. I can be really straightforward. I'm naturally frank. You know, I'm really loving. So that's what help, makes it work for people because they can yeah. sense that I love them. But I'm also like... You know, hey, man, I think you're full of shit. And I don't say that because you're wrong for it. I'm just saying I, you're lying to yourself and I know you know it. So why don't yeah. we get real? Like I'm that guy. I'm like the smelling salts. So for people um, and I've just decided that that's OK. And so I spend my yeah. time doing that. So now I coach mostly founders of companies and come in and train their leadership teams and align their teams and assemble them or disassemble them and just have a ball doing it. That's so, awesome. This episode is brought to you by Speroni. Revolutionize your shop floor with Speroni, where cutting-edge technology meets craftsmanship. Elevate precision, amplify productivity. Speroni. Experience, tradition, the future. So, uh, as I read in the intro, uh, you've had some super high-profile organizations, right? Yeah. Navy SEALs. Virgin Hyperloop, uh, yeah. the Oprah Winfrey Network. I mean, these are names that I would struggle to find anybody who doesn't know what they are, right? Yeah. Uh, at least in the U.S. Yeah. What have you identified with these high profile that everybody knows about, clients of yours? Yeah. What have you identified as uh, an aspect of leadership that can make or break company culture? Yeah. Well... Uh, man, there's like so many answers to this question. What makes or breaks, especially in high profile? Well, if how much do they drink their own Kool-Aid is really, I think, the first thing. Okay. So especially once you've become elite status, um, the, the temptation is to play not to lose. Like, so right. it's not lose what we had. And so therefore, you are looking for threats. Possibilities look like threats. Uh, people with inventive ideas look like threats and we become like in most of the 
the companies you've listed, they're, they've, are built around a personality. Sure. Like a like a founder, like in their vision, and so it becomes this kind of cult of personality, and uh, then you you what's the that distinction? So you if you're either going to be principle like like personality based or what I call principle based, okay. And so the risk is that you end up worshiping the founder's ideas instead of continuing to raise the bar about how good could it get around here, even beyond beyond the, the beyond the capacity of the founder. And every okay. great organization, the beautiful thing about group dynamics is as a whole, we're so much better than we are as an individual. Yep. But that requires, you know, stepping on to sake, stepping into, you know, disrupting what are previously known as like sacred conversations. Like, no, but that's not the way this person says it's done. Yeah. And okay, well, what you end up losing, what you end up creating for most of these is you end up losing top tier talent because top tier talent wants to continue to raise the bar and they want to create their own name. You know, they might be yep. a partner with this person, but they're there to also do their thing and they know how significant they want to be. And so if they're in a stifled organization where they're being treated like tools, like means to an end, instead of treated as human beings that have a lot to say and have something to contribute yeah. to the vision, then they leave. You know, so yeah. th I would say those are the first two things that come to mind. It becomes this very kind of play not to lose personality based thing. And then you end up losing. You can't retain high end, high end talent because you end up trying to protect the brand instead of continuing to reinvent the brand. Got it. So let's let's dive into your process a little bit uh, specifically. Uh, you brought up something right at the beginning there um, and we said we were going to circle back to it. Um, it, it, it was part of your process. I'm not remembering what it was though, Adrian. I was so focused on your, uh, your, your story. I, I totally forgot what it was. So tell us in broader terms, what is your process with, with your clients? Yeah. And sorry, I just realized that once I got done, it's like, I was just talking for like 40 minutes. Wow. Sorry for all that. Um, I promised like a medium, I, I can't imagine going longer than that. Um, so my process. Oh, sorry, listeners. If you're still here, I'm very proud of you. Um, the uh, <laughs> so the process. Well, almost almost a hundred percent of the people I talk to are are talking to me because somebody they know has worked with me or worked with my team. So it's all very highly referral based, and that's been on purpose because I don't want to spend my time talking strangers into anything. It's great for me to walk work with somebody that I already have trust established and they kind of know what they're getting into by the time they're talking to me. And they're already typically they've been complaining about something over lunch and one of their colleagues who works with me says, Hey, you need to talk to Adrian. Like Got I don't it. know what to say to what you're saying, but he he does and why don't you guys talk? And so that's so that's usually how the process begins. And in that initial conversation, I'm always doing a handful of things. Um, first off, I'm building rapport with them and getting to know them and listening and all that kind of stuff. But quickly, I'm paying attention to things that they aren't paying attention to. So okay. I'm always li I'm listening from this very distinct formula in my mind. And the formula goes like this, P plus E plus O over C. So P is patterns. I'm noticing what patterns people speak in or what they behave in because we're all very pattern machines as human beings. So I'm paying attention to patterns because whatever patterns you have, that creates your future. Um, okay. So whatever those patterns are, you know, because we all have patterns. So I'm listening for patterns. I'm listening for E, which is emphasis. What are they emphasizing, which is co also code for what do they want the listener to notice? 
And that's always strategic, sure. right? So they've got a, a certain aspect of the story that they're really being very dramatic about, or they might be saying it four or five times. I'm noticing what they're emphasizing because that's what they, that's what either they consciously or unconsciously are really focused on. Okay. And there's always upsides and downsides to that. That's E for emphasis. Over is for omission. I'm paying attention to what they're not saying. So if they're in the middle mm -hmm. of a story and are giving half of the perspective, let's say they're, they're talking about their co recent conversation with their co-founder and they never mentioned what their co-founder thought. They're just <laughs> giving their side of the story. I'll say, well, hold on. Okay, but let's go back. You said that. What did they say after you said that? And, and they've left that out. Or you know, they're telling a story about a project launch and they left out their contribution to the breakdown and the project launch. So I'm going to notice and ask about what they're omitting. And I'm always going to put that, the formula is put all that patterns and uh, emphasis and omission over context. Context is the aim, whatever the aim is, the stated goal, the vision. So, because yep. that, that's what gives meaning to all the other things. Because if my vision is X and that, that's what, that's uh, when, they're t when they're speaking, I'll see what they're describing as current reality the meaning for that is just in the context of how close or how far that is from their stated aim. And most people, okay. even the most ambitious people, uh, are usually very foggy about what they want. They're really yeah. clear about what they're complaining about, but they're really foggy yep. about what they want. And so I really want to help them get really clear about that. And sometimes that does the trick. Because, you know, I assert we all live with a vision. As mammals, we all live with intention. We can't not. That's what says this part as a genus would that be of of you know yeah. as, a, as a class of animals we all live with intention and so even if we're unclear then that means that confusion is the vision Got so it. if i don't know what i want i actually my intention is to not know what i want this is a counterintuitive view but the intention is then to not know what i want and i'll say well it sounds like your vision is to be unclear and they'll say no i want to <laughs> get clear i say okay great well Let's play a game. Why don't we actually entertain reality, not your fantasy about reality? So reality says you like being unclear because how long has it been since you sat down and had a goal session with your team? Oh, it's been a couple of years. Great. So you've actually generated a whole culture of not being clear. So let's say you do that on purpose. Let's say if you do it on purpose, there has to be payoffs to it. Great. What are the hidden payoffs to being unclear? And they'll say there are none. And I say, great. I'm asking you, though. Play the game. If there were some payoffs to being unclear, what are the payoffs? And then we'll slowly walk through that. And there are a ton of them, a ton of hidden payoffs to being unclear. Like I get licensed to do whatever I want. I'm not being I'm not being held responsible for anything. I can have very personality. Once again, personality based culture. I get to be erratic and I get to, you know, uh, take somebody's head off because it's not aligning with the thing that I want them to do, but I haven't told them. But, you know, they don't really have a chance. So I get to kind of be a diva. Anyway, there's lots of, I could go on for a list of 30 things. Yeah. There's always payoffs to being unclear. There's always prices as well. So then we talk about that. What pain in their life do they have because of their up until now chosen strategy to approach the work and to, to approach themselves? Now, yeah. that, set, that sets up a powerful context. I know if how they've hung in that conversation, if I want to work with them, and they'll know for sure if they want to work with me because I'm asking them to consider things that they've not considered before. And if they mm -hmm. aren't open to it at all, no problem, but don't work with me. I'm like the most expensive pain in the ass that you could have, <laughs> you know, but if you want this type of like insight and want this type of possibility that comes out of insight, I'm your guy. Cause yeah. you know, 
you know, because I've any anything my clients are struggling with, I've struggled with it, right? And I'm not, I'm cool with talking about it. Like it's, you know, it's just yeah. part of it. Welcome to humanity. And they usually need, I mean, it's kind of lonely at the top, that whole cliche. That's, I say, it's as lonely as we want it to be. Yeah. And it can be lonely okay. at the top. And I've had that experience. Other people have had that experience, but it's only lonely because I haven't invited anybody else into my world. And as soon as I let somebody into my world, it's less lonely. And if I want to, I yeah. can bring a whole senior leadership team into my world, but I'd have to, I'd have to risk not looking good and looking good is one of our survival needs. Look good, feel good, be right, be in control. So if, uh, you know, if I want to, if I want to survive, I want to look good. I won't share with anybody my struggles. They all know it, by the way. I always say that like when a, when a leader has a revelation, they're the last one to the party because everybody else has known it for a long time. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, I don't, I don't really know what to do. You know, it's like they finally say, you know, I don't really know how to deal with Tom. I know we all hate Tom. We've hated him for five <laughs> years. You're the one that finally is talking about it. So anyway, that sets up a powerful context. We actually, you're, you're asking about process. We use a leadership assessment tool. Um, we've got access. We're only one of 150, uh, what do they call it, vendors in the U.S. that gets access to this tool called the Harrison Assessment. It works in the same framework as the DISC or as Strengths Finder, which are much more common. Those two sure. only gauge, the Strengths Finder gauges 34, the DISC only four. This is 164 different traits. So what it gauges wow. is what somebody's preference is. And they've studied through this thing called the, the uh, enjoyment performance theory that if someone's spending 70% of their time doing what they prefer doing, they have an increased chance of success of 300 to 400%. So pretty big wow. deal. If it's true, then it's a pretty big deal. But we don't have language for it. So it's going to give okay. us language. It gives us objective language and actually also lays out 23 of these in these 12 paradoxes, because one of them's on there twice, of tensions that every single human being that's leading, we all have to manage these certain tensions. They're, they are not going away. Like, for example, the tension in communication. It's how much do I prefer being frank and how much do I prefer being diplomatic? That's a tension. That's not going away. And okay. we can either be high on both or most of us, we're imbalanced. We're higher on frankness and lower on diplomacy. For example, that makes you blunt. If you're higher on diplomacy and shorter on frankness, that makes you evasive. That's a reality. Got people it. feel that. That's got an effect. Yeah. And under stress, people flip to the other side. So the evasive guy that's not been fully forthright the whole time, when he goes under stress, he's going to go off on somebody. Got it. Under stress. Got it. Anyway, there's 12 of these paradoxes. So we will, back to the process... We use the Harrison assessment for one-on-one -on -one coaching, obviously, and I can get into what that process is if you want, but then also we work with teams. So we'll take everybody, like if I'm doing an executive offsite with eight people, they'll all take the Harrison assessment. We will debrief them all. They'll understand their own findings. And then in the room on the first day, we're going to put up all these paradoxes and, and show what we call a culture map. Here's where the team is. Here, this, here's where the team is you know, at rest. And here's where the team goes under stress and people are laughing and they're giggling and they're telling stories because it is so true because wow. it's just it's just behavior in a data form and they get to see it and the beautiful thing about it is they get to depersonalize it because now they get to see it out there in front of themselves and it's we normalize it because you know we're all dysfunctional so it's good just to give language for what's dysfunctional about us you know right. we're hopefully we're on a road to improving ourselves and want to be responsible and blah 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 but you know Whatever our core dysfunctions are, they're not going to go away. At least the temptation for those are not going to go away. But if sure. I understand it and take ownership of it and throw myself at balancing myself out and being mature, then I can have it 
versus it having me. If I don't want to see it, I don't want to take ownership, I don't want to better myself, then it has me. It's running my life. So, yeah. you know, a big theme of our work is personal responsibility, probably not surprising. So, and then out of that, we'll put people through a series and we play a lot of games together. And these are all like negotiating right. games from Harvard. So they're actually, they're meant to illuminate these tensions that are, that we show in the Harrison. We illuminate them in real time by, by playing, by doing these exercises together so people can see it and then comment on it in real time. So they can, they can break up they can uh, break up the norm, break up the habit and watch it. And then hopefully take ownership and learn. And then by the end of these two days together, people feel like advocates for each other. Like we're shoulder to shoulder. We're comrades. Like none of us are perfect. You know, we've got some business decisions to make, but I can get out of my own way and I can see myself and see how I'm making a great contribution or see I'm not making a great contribution and I'm going to self-govern. I'm going to, you know, self-mastery is a big part of our work. I'm going to self-govern or I'm going to advocate for my teammate from a place of compassion, not from a place of correction. Wow. It's there for them. You know, so if I know what you're up to and I know what you're committed to and you're coming at me sideways, if I, if I'm committed to you, I can take all your heat and I can say, Hey man, it seems like you're having a hard day. You'll say, (laughs) what? I'm just pissed at me. No, but you're treating me like I'm the enemy here. Can we, can we not do that here? Let's talk about what you want to talk about. Okay, I'm here for you, man. Remind you, I'm here for you, you know? And that's very different than, you know, avoiding and then judging you and gossiping about you and making the problem worse, which is what most people do. So that's the, I mean, so we we coach a lot of people one-on-one. We do always, we do this cultural alignment two-day offsite, which is way deeper than anybody wants to go because we are, we (laughs) go to the heart of the matter, you know? I promise clients that, Whatever, what's running their company is what's under the table, not what's on the table. And so if that's true, and I assert it's true, um, then that's where I'm going first. Whatever you don't want to talk about is what we're going to talk about. So it's very vulnerable. That's why we have a podcast called Naked Leadership Podcast. It's yeah. very vulnerable. And they, uh, we have those conversations. And surprisingly, even the most stoic, the most shut off, the most indignant person in the room ends up softening and having a real conversation because all that is just a reaction. You know, they do yeah. all that to be defensive, to protect themselves, but there's actually real concerns, real, real insecurities, real stuff going on underneath that. And most people only go to a therapist to talk about that stuff instead of actually right. doing it in real time with people that they care about and need to have a great relationship with. So we revitalize teams all day long, which is what we love doing. And then obviously we coach people and do that on a micro level, one-on-one with key stakeholders and whatever they need moving forward. So we love this work. We do a whole bunch of other stuff too, but that's the core of our work. And so who is, who is your key, uh, ideal customer? Um, when, when you're, I mean, you said you could talk to anybody sitting next to you on a plane. Um, but if you had to say my ideal customer is X, who is that? Well, I, the X factor, so we're not industry specific. So I work with lots of different people from all different verticals as we've already shown, um, the X factor for us is, uh, we love entrepreneurs because usually the stakes are really high and they, you know, and the, 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 the company moves at the pace of the leadership, which yeah. is both bad news. If they're doing poorly, it's great news if they're doing well. So I know if I can make a difference with like the founder or the CEO, which is usually the people I coach now, that'll make huge ripple effects. So, sure. you know, so people that are really willing to take a look, willing to be honest 
willing to take responsibility and speak that and make that happen. Those are key clients for us. I, I work with men and women, all different age groups, but that willingness to like have some grit and take a risk. Those are people that yeah. stick with us because we're going to invite them into risk every single conversation to, to do what you don't want to do, to go yeah. prove, to go prove your insecurities wrong. You know, like, I don't think I can do that. No, no, no. I know I, you, you can do that up until now you've been unwilling to, I think though, if you're actually operating out of courage, we talk about courage all day long instead of, instead of confidence. Um, but if you operate out of courage, you'll go do this. And we, if you get really clear about the future, then it's so compelling that people actually want to go do courageous. We all want to be heroes in our own story. So you can Absolutely. leverage that for them to go, you know, make the best decision they've made all year right now. Like once you get off the call with me, go, go send that email, right? Or even on the call sometimes like, Hey, start the email right now. I'll wait. <laughs> then they That's do it. That's awesome. You know, so calling people and so people that are willing to be courageous. I love people that are doing cool shit too. Like we've worked with a lot of aerospace companies. One of the one of the companies now is putting up a rocket in space, the first of its kind. It'll actually go back and forth, change its orbit in space. Nobody can do that right now. The guy that wow. runs that, Tom, he was the first employee at SpaceX. Elon hired him to build the rocket. He's brilliant, obviously, and he's got yeah. you know all these SpaceXers that are and they're phenomenal. They're uh, interesting people. They're engineers. They're totally nerdy, twice as smart as I am, and I get to learn about space. So cool, you know. I get to learn That's about awesome. textile industry. Anyway, I love working with people that are doing something interesting. I really won't work with people that aren't. So they okay. got to be doing something that I want to like learn about. Yeah. So, um, a, a lot of our listeners are manufacturers of course yeah. right the majority of manufacturers in the US are under 100 employees yeah. um they're becoming more private equity owned but mm -hmm. the majority are are privately owned mom and pop shops family yep. owned passed down from generation to generation um and on top of that, you've got a dynamic of an industry that is historically slow moving when it comes to uh, soft skills, when it comes to leadership development, right? Uh, this is an industry where you move up the totem pole when the guy in front of you dies or retires uh, right. or, or quits, right? Um, so it, for for these kinds of small organizations, what are some some things that they can do to change the leadership dynamic internally to to have more effective leadership? Yeah, am I talking to the person that's running it, or talking to somebody who just works there? Uh, let's let's do person who's running it, and then we'll we'll talk about the person who's working there that doesn't have a title but can yeah. also be a leader within the organization. Right on. So. Um, I love, I just got off a call right before we started with a guy that's in the middle of a property management company and he runs it, uh, with a family member and it's not going well, okay. um, only because there's all these, and it runs a family owned business. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's complicated. It's leadership yep. is, with other people is complicated period, let alone throw family dynamics on it, uh, and authority structure. Right. So, um, you know, so if you run it and let's say you're the son and, you know, dad is still around, let's say, and dad's mm -hmm. probably very committed to the traditional way of doing things, probably not as committed to technology as you are, um, you know, gives probably leniency to his buddies that have been there for 30 years and doesn't want to rise up all these youngsters that haven't earned their chops, you know, sound familiar? You know, this yep. is, you know, that's a, a really great dynamic. So first off, 
if you are playing not to first off, uh, there's so many first offs. Let's see where to begin. Uh, my invitation to you is first off to get real. And uh, do you want to run this company or not? Uh, or are you there just to please? If so, no big deal, but just get real with yourself. Am I there just because of the pressure, the family pressure, like I should, I must, otherwise it'd kill my mother or blah, 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 but, you know, <laughs> uh, and get real with yourself. Because if you're only there to kind of make the best out of something you don't like, it's not going to go very well. Yeah. You know, because you 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 will naturally just tolerate things that you wouldn't tolerate if you were there if you were there to play to win. Yep. And 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 I would say you know I do both and all the time. So winning both is outcomes and your relation meaning and meaning and fulfillment relationships. Like you got to have an eye for both. Yep. Right. So with deep respect, you can have conversations with the power powers that be that um are high stakes and you could just talk about the future there's probably not a 65 70 year old guy that doesn't want to have a great legacy yeah you know probably Absolutely. you know and they probably. live with that yeah right they live with that like they actually even though they're really stuck in their ways what they probably matter most to them is 20 years from now when they're fully retired maybe they're still living that they want to set their kid up for success as a parent i really I want my to set my kid up for success. So yeah. if you can kind of pull yourself out and jump into a bigger conversation and say, Hey dad, as we're just kind of making this up fictionally, Hey dad, listen, I want to be doing this for the next 20 years. And I want to keep, you know, your reputation high, just like you mm -hmm. kept your dad's reputation high. The reality is I can't do it the way that you want to be doing it. And it'll kill me. And it'll make me miserable for my wife, I'm speaking as if I'm a guy, for my wife and for my kids. And they're going to be, you know, I'm not going to be a great, uh, a great husband and a great mm -hmm. father to these kids. And so can we at least, can we please like talk about, you know, and we can do it slowly over time, but talk about ways that we can, sh you know, we've, this company is currently shaped around you because you're great and you led it for 20 years the way can we talk about how to slowly start to shift it so the company fits me because i can't run your company i need to slowly start mm -hmm. to run the company that looks more like me can we at least talk about that and there's yeah. probably nobody that's going to say no to that they're going to at least be open to talking about it so you need to be respectful number one yeah. of you know because you're only there you know as the co-ceo or whatever or the coo because he did it or she did it. Yep. So respect that. Number one. Second is you're not going to change it in a day and probably it would sure. break it if you tried to change it in a day. So it's good to start a conversation about it and get a plan together responsibly. What they probably want. First off, you're probably going to pull the company into arenas that they wouldn't know what to do with and don't know what to do with. So there's going to be a sense of a loss of control. Why? Because they're losing control. They're giving up yeah. control to you. Right. So it's going to have to be a process. Uh, and they'll start to feel obsolete, which is probably every baby boomer's worst nightmare is to feel obsolete. So you have to create a narrative in which they still get to do something meaningful. It's distinct. It. They're not going to run the show, but they have to find a way to still be meaningful, right? It, to be the grandpa of the shop, to be the, you know, they could just come to and come value. to work, bring value, generate value with their wisdom and yeah. experience. And don't underestimate that. A lot of people have such an ax to grind that the youngsters do. Like be, because they're just trying to prove themselves instead of, um, you know, and then they come off so 
come off so they come off irresponsible and they come off very short-sighted because they're there to try to make a mark instead of there to really absorb and honor all the people that came before them and take that and work with that clay instead of coming out as arrogantly usually to know if i'm going to be here and they do all these ultimatum type shit and and participate in the drama and generate a lot of drama around it and like maybe maybe even make threats instead of really honoring it honoring that and working with them to start a process now if if the process starts to generate lucrative results and brings the team together, it can go faster and it will go faster because it's working. You know, so, you know, if you don't know how to generate a plan, a strategic plan that to make that happen over time, then you ought to go talk to somebody that knows how to do that. Because there's lots of people like you that that know how to do that. So they had to talk to you and figure out how to put together a real plan to make this work over time, make more money in, you know, keep attrition low, keep people, you know, do this generational gap thing. So that's if, yeah. if you're, if you're, if you're a person in the company that isn't a part of the family, then, yeah. um, you know, that's a little bit harder. And you, might not, and, you, and you might not want to do it, you know? <laughs> yeah. You so might tell not us want more to do about it. that. Yeah. Yeah. You might not want to do it because there is going to be all this drama that you don't have the right to speak into. Right. And that just is what it is. So it's not like, it's like me going out to playing a, a game of pickup basketball saying, Hey guys, can we play football? No, they're <laughs> here to play basketball. You know, right. so this family business is going to be run like a family business. So you better get really good at building alliances that are good and healthy and understanding and listening and honor and respecting and finding out ways. If the old guys are there that have been there a long time, be their best mentee. That's what I would do. I be like their it. best mentee. Can, you know, come up with ways that you can be a value add, even if you're seeing it from like a younger generation's perspective. But if you walk around like with an axe to grind, like people don't get me around here, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Like in this, it's you're not like you're working at Apple, you know, you're working in a, in a, you know, blue collar manufacturing business. It's family run, family owned. So it's going to feel like a family. So you better like learn how to be the most valuable person in the family. And Absolutely. you can probably with certain people bring innovative ideas, probably with the youngsters that are around, bring innovative ideas and you guys can work together shoulder to shoulder. Don't bring, don't generate an us versus them mentality yeah. shoulder to shoulder with people that really honor tradition and get used to wanting to kind of squeeze the tradition for the most amount of value and then add something to it don't try to take it apart so then finally you're valuable got it so you brought up uh something earlier adrian and and after that we're i'm gonna ask you uh, the last question um but you brought up emotional intelligence right mm-hmm. and, and so talk to us about the role that EQ plays in leadership, uh, especially in relation to shaping, maintaining uh, that healthy company culture that we all desire to have. Sure. Well, EQ really is also RQ. It's really relational intelligence. Ah, So, all right. You know, I, I would say probably first off, I mean, especially speaking as a man, most men aren't trained to know what's going on in their feelings. And, you know, we're not, you know, we're just kind of doers and we're trained to be doers. So first off, if you feel like you're lost, it's okay. You're probably are lost. That's all right. Um, It's good to go find people. When I met that guy, Dan Takini, I was describing probably the number one thing that I was compelled with by him is his relation is his emotional range by that. He could be tough, like a guy you do not want to meet in a dark alley, like a tough mofo 
on one <laughs> on one end. Other end, he would weep with people, weep yeah. with them. And I and I had never been around that before. Like a guy that could like cry and a guy that could like get emotional. Um, and so I wanted to be around him because I wanted to see how does he access that. Sure. So you're never going to be. I mean, you can maybe put on a show. Uh, emotionally, but you're probably never going to get beyond what you're able to access for yourself. So if you haven't been through experiences, if you haven't gone, I mean, I'm probably the last person to say go to therapy for a handful of other reasons. Nothing wrong with therapy. Uh, But I've got some pretty clear, you know, views on what usually happens in the therapist chair. And I've gone to therapy before. Um, Anyway, sorry, I won't go down that rabbit trail. But the point is, You've got experiences you probably don't have language for. So there might be uh, some coaches you could talk to that'll help you get, help you work through. I don't use the word trauma very often, but the difficulties in your life, things you've gone through, you yeah. know, things that you've suffered through. Most guys, I'm stereotyping, just tie shit off and like, it's fine. I'm fine. Absolutely. Whatever. It's yeah. cool. Never mind. You know, yep. but it, the purpose to go look in those things is so you actually can become friends with sorrow. If you can become a friend with the suffering in your own life, it makes you um, be someone that can enter the sorrow or suffering or difficulty or despair or challenge or anger of somebody else. Like if I get in touch with my own anger, your anger doesn't bother me. I can actually empathize with yours. I get it. So when you're, you know, crazy towards me, but I know how I can get crazy, which I can get crazy towards my kids or towards, you know somebody, you know, a significant other, I can get crazy. And I, I, all of a sudden, like your volatility becomes an invitation. I want to get close to it, but I have to be able to, I have to be able to hug the cactus in my own life. Like the thing I want to avoid, I got to go put Mm -hmm. my arms around it. And we've all been through shit and we've all made horrible decisions at times. And we've hurt ourselves and hurt other people. Lots of us just try to try to forget about that, but that's resource. So if you want to become more emotionally intelligent, you got to become first more emotionally aware, which takes in this day and age, you got to slow down the pace. It might mean listening. I mean, I read poetry uh, to help really? me. I do. I do because poetry is romantic. Poetry, I mean, it's both. Yeah, it, it, it talks of the, be- the most beautiful things in the world and it talks of the deepest, darkest things in the world. And I want to get close to both of those things and explore yeah. it because I'm not thinking about that. I'm a get shit done guy. I mean, you know, yeah. I, you know like I'm talking on this podcast, I was talking so fast for so long. Once again, really sorry. The... <laughs> But I, I can it was just awesome, get, man. It was I can a great just get, story. I can just get shit done and like, you know, I'm fine, you know, and I can soldier yeah. up better than anybody. But I want to be able to slow down and like appreciate the beauty and the depth of what's happening in life. And so therefore I can speak to people from where they want to be versus where they are. Got it. Because if, if someone is really, you know, probably in your industries, people listening, if somebody shows up really closed off and bitter and angry, they're dying for a conversation. But yeah. if you're, if you're typical, you're going to judge them and keep it a distance. That's what human beings do. Like they're a threat. Yeah. I don't like them. I'm going to stay away. But if you can become a person that like sees somebody that's bitter and angry and can, you can want to befriend them. Um, and if you take that leap, people will respond to that. You um, know, you know, like, like it's it a lot. If, if Susie's just a bitch in the office or whatever. And it's like, if you just, you just decide to be her friend. Like, hey, yeah. I need to see, you're angry today. What's wrong? You know, and you listen to them. She'll open up to you. And that will become your reputation. Like, oh, she, you, Adrian broke through to, to, to whatever, what did I call her? Nancy? Betsy? Nancy, anyway, yeah. Adrian, Adrian broke through to Nancy. Nobody talks to Nancy, you know? <laughs> so, you be, 
So anyway, so if you start to give yourself to the complexity of human emotions, you're going to get closer to it. If you haven't yeah. been through anything like that before, if you want, by the way, a big kickstart on that, we do trainings called the Revenant Process. It's a four-day personal leadership uh, training. It's like 10 years of therapy in a weekend. So if, especially if you're wow. a dude and you would never go to therapy, which I don't blame you, come to the Revenant Process. Um, you'll go to depths you didn't even know you had, but you're, you'll say things you didn't even know you had to say. You'll explore things you're, we're forever going to run from. It is the most, it is the most, I mean, we just surveyed 2000 recent grads and 97% of them said it was one of the top three experiences of their life. Wow. So come to it. it we've got several okay. coming up next year. We are revenant.com. We are Revenant, R-E-V-E-N-A-N-T, like to come back from. We are Revenant.com. There's one in Boise in February. There's one in L.A. in April. There's a Hawaii we're doing, I think, in June. Anyway, okay. if you go to we are Revenant.com, you can come. And if you don't, if this all frightens you but compels you, come to one of our trainings. Love to have you. Yeah, awesome. Uh, Adrian, um, we're running out of time. But before we let you go, I do have to ask you, what didn't I ask you? on today's episode that you want to share with the audience? Mm. What didn't you ask me? Um, hmm. That's a surprising question. Let's see. What didn't you ask me um, that I want to share with the audience? Maybe just what do I want to share with the audience? Uh, I forget when this is going to land. I don't think I asked you before, but. January. In January. Well, it's wonderful. That's right. You know, you did mention that. I would just say, I don't think, I don't know if I can frame it as a question, but just what do I want to say to the audience? You know, it's so if you're yeah, listening to this, perfect. it's January. It's January, guys. So 2024 is not yet written. And I'm just wondering if you've wondered about how good this year could be for you. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you're, if you've even wondered that, or if you're just doing now in January, what you did in December. And if you mm -hmm. think this year's, if 2024 is just inevitably 2023, you're really normal if you think that way. So no reason to judge it. But I'm telling you that if you ask yourself a few key questions, this year could mm -hmm. be the best year you've ever had. Like what, like whatever's, whatever's going left, you could turn it to go right. Now you're probably going to need a lot of help. I know I need a lot of help and I have a lot of help in my life. Um, so, you know, you know, reach out to our brother here and talk, or you can obviously reach out to us. We're here for you. Just my invite to you. I mean, there's this old kicker guard quote, and I'll end with this, that first time I heard it, it floored me. He said that men find a level of despair that's tolerable and call that happiness. And I would invite you to take a look into the areas that you don't want to take a look at. And then whatever you do, if you pray about it, if you reach out and ask for help, whatever you do about it, my invite to you, we don't know how long we have in life and play to win, will you? Will you take a fresh look and ask for some help? Men especially always need more help than we want. And yeah. that's, that's like gravity for me. I know that's true. I always need a lot more help than I want. Yeah. Um, but if you ask for help, miracles can happen. And I hope that you have a mirac miraculous year. I love that. That's awesome, Adrian. Thank you very much for joining us today. And that, my friends, marks the end of another thrilling episode of the Manufacturing Culture Podcast. Today's deep dive with Adrian Kaler has truly illuminated the profound impact of leadership in molding and nurturing a positive company culture. It's clear that the right leadership approach can be the catalyst for transformative change 
empowering teams, inspiring innovation, and fostering an environment where everyone wins. Remember, the journey to excellent company culture begins with a single step, and that step is enlightened leadership. Be sure to revisit the gems from today's conversation and apply these insights to your own leadership journey. A huge thank you again to Speroni for their unwavering support and sponsorship. Their dedication to excellence and innovation mirrors the values we cherish in shaping a vibrant company culture. Don't forget to visit our treasure trove of wisdom and inspiration at the manufacturingculturepodcast.com. There you can access a wealth of resources to guide you on your path to cultural mastery. And now we turn to you, our incredible listeners. If today's episode sparked or inspired you in any way, share this episode with your friends, your colleagues, and anyone who's passionate about cultivating a dynamic company culture, about leadership, about manufacturing. Your sharing is our growth. This is how we grow. We, I, I don't advertise places. I don't. We grow through word of mouth. And so if you share this episode with, with your friends, we're going to grow. Uh, lastly, take a moment to, to wait, rate and review the show. Uh, your feedback fuels my passion, but it also helps others uh, discover the power of leadership in transforming company culture because it rates uh, rockets us up the charts. So stay tuned, stay inspired, and remember the culture of your company is a story of your leadership. Write a story that resonates, uplifts, and empowers. Until next time, keep leading, keep innovating, and keep inspiring. Have a great day and keep making things. Mm-hmm.